The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Oshawa. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm, it's a joy to, uh, to share the word with you this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we do offer ourselves to you this morning, and uh, we, we confess our need for your help. Uh, we, we thank you for this, uh, this hope, this encouragement that you gave to your people in uh, just very difficult circumstances that you would uh, draw them to yourself, that, that when they seek you, they would find you. And we come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, and all different places in our journey of looking for God. Uh, but uh, we do come seeking truth. We do come uh, seeking to, uh, to know you. So please help us and please meet us uh, as, we, as we seek to learn this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the last message of the series called Renew that we've been in. Um, and just a, a little note uh, and a kind of an invitation to you as we end this series. Our, our plan is two weeks after Easter to do a... Uh, a time of question and response uh, during our, our uh, teaching time. And in particular, we want to drive in deeper into the, the personal application points of this series. We, uh, we dealt with uh, various issues, right? Of, of we talked about family of origin and self-awareness. We, we dealt with spiritual disciplines and in uh, Sabbath and solitude and meditation and prayer and um, then we talked about community life and, and how, do we, how do we learn to be a community together. And then uh, these last two weeks we're going into city renewal. How do we be a renewing force in our city? And we really want to drive these different topics and issues home and as well as just let you guys bring back to us, hey, this, this was unclear to me or I'm still wondering about this or this is something I'm struggling with. Could we process through this together? And so um, I want to encourage you to think through any questions that, that came up. Maybe if you're, if you're a good note taker, look back over those notes and, and try to find something. That, hey, I, I would love to, uh, that we talk more about this. Um, so think about that over the next couple weeks. Uh, we'll be throwing out questions in the community groups, on uh, the Tuesday morning Bible study, as well as you could just uh, email uh, elders at Central. Uh, Bible.church or office at centralbible.church with those questions. And again, it's not like general church direction questions. We'll have other times and seasons for that. This is more personal application growth questions. Um, so be thinking about that, and we want to take more time to, to drive in those areas where, uh, where we're most hungry to learn. Um, okay. Start with a question. Do you know your family history? Right? Some of us, 
maybe are more disenfranchised from family history and roots. Other of us have a, a strong heritage that we can trace back. For my wife and I, I'm, the, I'm kind of the orphan. I don't, I, I don't have much connection to my, to my uh, family history. She, on the other hand, traces it back to, what is it, the 13th century? Something like, okay, so she, her maiden name is Wallace. Mel Gibson made a movie about the guy. Um, and, and literally, they can trace back their family of origin, every single generation, back to William Wallace. So, good, thank you, my daughter corrected me. So, unlike the movie, William Wallace didn't have any kids. He didn't marry the princess or, or whatever, have relations with the princess. Um, actually, he didn't have kids, but his brother did. And so, the Wallaces are actually the uncle of... William Wallace, um, and, and they trace it back. And so you go all the way back, and there's, li- there's literally a William Wallace in every single generation since then, except for one. So don't be that one guy that like, didn't name your son William Wallace, uh, because the Wallaces are going to remember. Um, and so family gives us, helps us know identity, because we're a story-formed people. The story around who we are and our community and our family helps us understand who we are today. It gives us meaning. It gives us identity. In our individualistic kind of secular culture, right, there's a lot of separation and disconnection from cultural heritage. Instead, we go to things like subcultures. We go to consumption and, our, our, and consumerism, and we find, well, I, this is the brand I use or the brand I wear And we find subcultures that instead defined our identity and we enter into those stories to to find meaning. For us, as followers of Christ, and the invitation to be a follower of Christ is an invitation to be shaped by the story of Jesus and his people, right? Not to be shaped primarily by the secular stories and the brand names and the subcultures around us or even the religious, moralistic kind of us-them story of tribalism, but no, it's, a, it's a, a call to be shaped by the story of Jesus. And so as we ask this final question of how do we, as we're being renewed personally, see renewal in our city? How do we make an impact in our city? The answer is going to be in our lives being shaped by this story, and entering into it. And so we're going to go uh, through three, three points this morning. We're going to first orient ourselves with our story as the church in the West. And maybe if you're just a visitor and you don't identify with the story of the church in the West, I'm, I'm kind of like that. I, I, I got invited into that story. I, I wasn't raised in it. So maybe it'll just be a little educational uh, history of our dysfunctional family in the West. Um, but maybe if you grew up in the church... It'll be good to know your heritage. And then, second, we're going to consider this little snapshot of Israel's history, right? The history of God's people from Jeremiah 29. And then finally, we're going to look at the story of the gospel and how we apply that story to our lives. So, the story of our church, the story of, of God's people in exile, and finally, the story of the gospel. So, first, the story of the church in the West. This is going to be a brief history, right? I've only got five or ten minutes. Brief history over the last hundred years, and we're going to focus in on the relationship of the church 
to culture and to the city around us, okay? So, and some of you have lived through a lot of this. Other of us, this is just a good history lesson. If you go back for the first half of the 20th century, what you see and what cultural commentators have kind of called it is this time of Christendom, a time of significant cultural influence of the, the church and of generally Judeo-Christian morals and values, right? So there was a shared understanding. Whether or not someone was a, a churchgoer, there was a shared understanding of things like sexuality, of family life, of work ethic, and of God. And so when a, when a Christian would speak about God or Jesus, right, they could, whoever they talked to, just walk to someone up on the street, you could assume a shared understanding, right, and a shared vocabulary and a shared ethic, right? And the call of the gospel wasn't uh, primarily like, like a missionary call to someone way out uh, in Timbuktu, right? No, you could assume that really what you were just doing is you were calling them to consistently live up to what they already thought was true, right? Like, for me, as an example, when I was church planning in Hawaii, I would pick up hitchhikers. Hitchhiking was a thing there, it still is, and there'd be two types of people I would pick up. If it was kind of the, um, the it was kind of, I I want to say it in a nice way, because this is my heritage. Kind of a, a, a hippie, kind of new age traveler kid, right? Who's, who's living on, a, on an organic farm uh, near the beach in a tent. Like, that was their world and scene. And I'd pick them up, hitchhiking, and, and we'd have no connecting points when it comes to who is God or is, it, is, is God even a, a he or a she? Like, like, there really was no common ground. Whereas if I, if I picked up a, uh, a local Hawaiian, let's say a young man, because he has a heritage, there was a significant revival among the Hawaiian people in the earliest 20th century. And so I could immediately just ask him, hey, what, what church do you go to? And if he, either he went to a church or he would lower his head in shame and be like, oh yeah, I haven't been in a long time. You, you, you see the difference there? One, you got to start at the very basic level of what is even truth? Is there such a thing as truth or right and wrong? The other one could understand, oh yeah, I, I, I recognize God, and I recognize that, that I, I should be following him. So this is this background, right, of, of this Christendom age. And, and the way that the, the church tended to respond to that largely was to ignore culture. And just kind of assume the culture was on our side, right? And so, so because of that, right, there would, there would be largely an ignoring of culture, a separating of, of culture, and, and this idea that, that, you know what, we could just kind of do our own thing. We could, we could uh, be more, just focus on evangelism and discipleship, right, and crusades and calling people back to the church. But something happened. Something shifted in the 60s and 70s. And this was, there was a significant shift and a significant loss of influence and a divergence from the Judeo-Christian morality in our culture. And a lot of this resulted slowly from this lack of engagement. And so there was growing in all the places of cultural influence. You have academia, scientific community, Hollywood, Washington, D.C., where the church was totally separate and ignored them that they largely became more and more secular. And as these secular institutions began to influence the rest of society, right, that pushed Christian values to the fringes. 
Just some stats. In 1952, 75% of Americans said that, quote, religion was very important to them personally. But by the mid-1970s, less than half of that percentage said the same thing. Church attendance dropped from 50% in 1958 to 40% in 1969. That's the fastest decline ever recorded in such a short distance of time. Or a final stat, for the young people, for those in their 20s, it was even a, a greater change in decline. 1957, which by the way is the year this building was built. 1957, 51% of the people attended church. In 1971, that fell to 28% among people in their 20s. This was a significant change. And the church had to respond somehow, right? So there was at least three different responses, kind of groups of, of, of ways of, of processing this. The first was the response of pietism, okay? And this was the, this idea that, that we could continue just avoiding culture like we were previously, but we just needed to retreat farther because now cultures become more immoral, right? So the, this is this kind of go into the, the Christian cloister, and this was the idea where we started then starting our own Christian institutions, Things like schools and camps and publications, do our own art, have our own music. And these would then serve the Christian community. And so you could have this safe enclave protected from the harmful influences of culture. Right? And this also developed then the idea of a Christian worldview, which was a, a good idea. How do we think critically about culture and about the influences around us and they would and, and and it was this idea in pursuit to not be shaped by the culture not be conformed to the culture that was that was good that was good but then what began to happen then this pietism led and turned into and some others took it a different way and it was angry pietism okay this is something called fundamentalism Okay, that's where, where we saw that, hey, the mistake of the past was we totally ignored the places of cultural influence and we let, let the culture kind of go, right? So we need to take it back, right? We need to get back into government, in the arts and the sciences and, and, and Hollywood. And, and this then turned into the, also the fundamentalist movement and then the religious right, right? Where, where you bring together religion and, and politics. And this would look like sometimes seeking censorship in entertainment. This is fighting for prayer in the schools, fight against abortion, fight against the cultural acceptance of homosexuality. And, and then the religious right, right, it merged its agenda with the Republican Party and sought generally conservative values, okay? With all its faults, there was a genuine desire to say we need to again engage in the public sphere, and that was good. In the midst of right all of maybe the triumphalism and the and the the anger that was behind it, and then a, a, a final approach is what you could call the seeker-sensitive approach. This is kind of essentially the if you can't beat them, join them approach to doing church, and it and it it, it took ideas of that we learned from the culture, and even ideas of kind of market consumerism, and said, well, we need to remarket the church to a new generation. And we need to kind of soften some of our views that appear politically incorrect, and, 
And it didn't go all the way to like mainline, right, liberalism in rejecting the gospel, but they just tried to kind of just put everything on the bottom shelf and, and be more marketable, more trendy, more hip, more cool to the rest of the culture. Okay, that, that was in the 70s and 80s. And then, now this is my, kind of my generation, we responded to all that and we're like, you know what, the angry fundamentalists, we don't like their triumphalistic attitude and, and they sold out to like American nationalism and market capitalism and, and we're not into that stuff. And, and that seeker sensitive movement, they're, they're, they're too much into like making everything look squeaky clean and, and marketable and, and like pat answers for difficult questions and three easy steps to improve your life. And like life is more complex and dirty and messy and, and, it, and we want to be authentic and raw and and so then this missional church movement, an emerging church movement kind of grew in the 90s and early, early 2000s, where we're just like, get rid of all of it. All of our, our parents' way of doing church, they don't get it, we're gonna, we gotta rethink this thing, right? But they agreed on what they hated, and they couldn't agree on what was actually good and what they should keep. And so they threw everything out, and honestly, that movement has kind of fractured and gone its own way and some have kind of just gone off the deep end into liberalism and kind of even losing the gospels. And others, though they rejected some of the consumeristic elements of culture, they fell into the trap of the celebrity culture in America. And so you have these celebrity pastors that end up getting, like falling out of the ministry because of, of kind of being victims of their own success and they're kind of reading and believing their own uh, PR material. And, and so, <laughs> that, that's kind of the history of the church in the last hundred years, There's, in, particularly as we relate to culture. It's been a lot of missteps and a lot of pendulums and swings and extremes. Now, there's been some good stuff, right? There's been pockets of renewal and life and transformation. So it's not all bad. But largely, we haven't known what to do as a church on the margins of society. We haven't known how to act. We haven't known how to be faithful to Christ without compromising and giving in and being conformed and without just being your, that angry old uncle that's just like complaining about everything. Right, how do, how do we lovingly engage with the culture around us? And, and for you that know the history of our church, right, like literally this building was built in 1957 where where most people were, were going to church and it lived through that whole era of this transformation. And, and we can't, I don't feel qualified to judge the past generation and past leadership, but I think if you look at that pendulum swing, we've probably tended to be more on the fundamentalist side that's been against culture than on the kind of seeker-sensitive, let's just jump in and, 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 and conform. Each one has its dangers, but it's good to kind of know your history, right? We've tended to be more on, on this other side. So that's our story. That's a little bit of our history. Now let's jump into Jeremiah. Let's see, honestly, how similar the story of God's people is to the, to the story of the church in the West. Okay, so look to, look to Jeremiah 29. We're going to jump in together. Um, we'll start in verse 4. So the setting of the story here is the captivity of Israel. If you know kind of your, your general 
story of the scriptures. God's people were given this land, right? And, and then they broke covenant. And they, and they invited in the idols of the nations. And God fulfilled his covenant with them. He said, if you, if you uh, this land is this gift, and if you turn from me and worship the nations, I will send you among the nations. You will, you will be sent into exile. And, and that happens. Babylon comes in and destroys the, the temple, takes all the, uh, the, all the holy things in the temple. And, he, and they, in their kind of strategy for destroying nations, they, would t- they took the educated and the elites uh, out of, of Israel and brought them into Babylon. Okay, and so this is this, this time of kind of a crisis of faith, of being in the center of God's blessing and, and influence and, and, uh, and kind of cultural power within their own nation, and then they're sent off into captivity. And, and there's three purposes that we'll see in this passage. There's three different plans of this exile going on. Okay, the plans of the Babylonians, the plans that we'll see of these false prophets, and then finally, God's plan of this exile. The first, and you don't really see it in the text, it's just kind of understanding the, the wider context. The first is the, the purpose and plan of the Babylonians, and that was assimilation. They wanted to assimilate Israel so that they disappeared. And this is how they would do it. This is how they would, the Babylonian empire would take over other nations and other cultures is they would, like I said, they would take the most educated, they would take the, the, the skilled laborers and, the, and the, the artists and bring them into places of cultural influence within Babylon. They would separate them, tear them up from their cultural heritage so that within a couple generations, they would just integrate. And by the, the second or third generation, they would be no different from the Babylonian culture around them. But, then, but their strengths and their intellect would contribute and help build up the Babylonian culture and, and empire. That was their plan, was assimilation. Now, there's this other plan within Israel, and this was the idea of separation. And you see it, look at verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 29. It, this is uh, Jeremiah's letter, right, that he's writing to those that went into exile. It says this, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Okay, they were, they were giving a different message than God was giving through Jeremiah the prophet. And you can see it. Turn back one page in your Bible to, to chapter 28, verses 2 and 3. You, you can see what this message is. This guy, Hananiah, he's, he's a, a self-proclaimed prophet. And he's giving this message to, to Israel. And he says this in verse 2 of chapter 28. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. That's a, that's a nice message. That's a really positive, encouraging message. Hey, don't worry. Don't worry. You're Israel. God loves you. God has chosen you. He wouldn't let this, this pagan nation take over. No, no, no. He's going to bring you back. So don't unpack your bags. Don't get comfortable because God's going to rescue you. Okay? It's this very triumphalistic, positive, right? It's going to be okay. The temple's going to get restored. Everything's fine. But that was not God's purpose. 
for Israel in the captivity. Let's read in chapter 29, starting in verse 4. We see that God's purpose for the exile was both distinction and integration. Not assimilation, not separation, but distinction and integration. Starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live, and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile." And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is a far more offensive message, isn't it? This is far more difficult to hear. It's not, you're going to go home in two years, it's going to be just fine. It's, no, you know what? Every single one of the adults and most of the children that went into exile will die in Babylon and never see the promised land again. And it will not be until their grandchildren are grown that God will rescue his people and bring them back home. You can see why this wasn't a popular message, right? This was not what they wanted to hear. But there's something deeper going on. There's, there, there's a message that's deeper here in God's purpose that goes beyond their comfort and their, their cultural superiority and their, their like perfect enclave of the promised land where they could be the people of Israel without the annoyance of other nations getting in their way. There's a deeper purpose going on in God's sending his people into Israel. Notice that. I sent you into exile. And this deeper purpose is going to help us see our path forward as a church here in Portland. And so in these verses we see that God's plan was not assimilation that the Babylonians wanted or separation. Right? It was distinction and integration. Look at verse 4 again where he describes what this looks like. Right? He says, he said, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives for your sons and daughters. And then look at this. He says in verse 6, multiply there and do not decrease. Right? The principle is you're going to be here for a long time. Make yourself at home. Dig your roots down deep into this community. As I meditate on this, it, it, it struck me. This is actually a recommissioning of God's people. So theologians have called the, what is the, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and 2. It's this idea, right, where God said to, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth, cultivate it, subdue it, have children, right? And he put them in a garden. This is this cultural mandate. He put them in a garden, surrounded by wilderness, and said, Take this garden, multiply and fill the earth, and cultivate the wilderness so that it becomes a garden. Take the name of God, right? 
We're made in God's image. Take that name and spread it through the world. Do you see that again here? He says, multiply, multiply, have kids, plant gardens, don't decrease, be fruitful and multiply. Be representatives of my glory and my name and bring that name to the ends of the earth. Right? That's, that's the recommissioning of God's people from the cultural mandate of Genesis to then go to the nations, to go to Babylon. Right? And then what happened? What happened in, in the garden? Right? Our first parents failed to protect that garden that God put them in, right? They they were supposed to cultivate it and protect it, and and the serpent comes in and deceives them and says, doubt God's goodness. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want the best for you. And so they doubt his goodness. And then what does God do? He sends them into exile, out of the garden into the wilderness. Our first parents were sent into exile. And then God, again, brought them back to a land. There was the temple at the center of of the community of Israel, right? And that temple was shaped after the garden. I'm reading through the the book of Exodus with our kids. We learn about the tabernacle. We We ask the kids, why are there pomegranates in the tabernacle? Isn't that weird that there's pomegranates in the tabernacle? Like... We have all these metal workers, right? Okay, you're going to make a beautiful statue of a pomegranate and put it in the temple or in the tabernacle, which then was the temple was, the, was after that model. Why is that? Because when they went into worship, they were to be reminded of the garden, be reminded of the place where, where man and God dwelled together in peace. So you see it here. Our first parents were sent into, into exile. And again, God's people are sent into exile from the, the garden, from the promised land, into the wilderness of Babylon. But get this, it's not just about you blew it, right? It's not just, oh yeah, you, you just totally blew it, you totally ignored God, so he's going to punish you. So just go and wait in time out for 70 years, <laughs> But you finally, you've done your time in purgatory and time out. Okay, I'll bring you back when you're all dead and, you're, and your grandkids can come. That's not what this is about, right? This is the purpose of God sending his people on his mission. I am sending you into Babylon to be fruitful and multiply and to, t- to turn that wilderness into a garden. To spread my glory and my name to the ends of the earth. But here's the difference. They're not going to do it triumphantly, are they? Right? They're not going to do it. We're going to come and and convert the Babylonians. No. They're they're going humbled. They've been broken by their sin. They've been severely disciplined by a loving father. And they're going to go with a humble heart, with a humble attitude, fully aware of their own sin, fully aware of their need for God's grace. Right? And God that doesn't, doesn't let them stop there. Right? He doesn't let them stop there of just, okay, yeah, so build gardens, multiply, and grow. No. He, he does something more. He says, verse 7, 
but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Or in the, the translation that, that Andrew read, their peace and their prosperity. Now this, this connects it, this brings it together. We have in Genesis 1 to 2 that cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with the name of God. Take the wilderness and cultivate it. Make it a beautiful garden. Make culture, produce, fruitful, bring flourishing. And then, then we see the call of Abraham, right in Genesis 12, is this call to bless the nations, be a blessing to the nations. And New Testament scholars have, have long noted the connection between the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, the promise to Abraham, and this, the commissioning of Abraham to be a blessing of all nations, and then to Matthew 28, the commissioning of God's people to go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see it here? The connection's here. Go be fruitful and multiply as I send you among the Babylon, and then, but don't just do it for yourself. Can we be selfish and just build houses for ourselves? And just plant gardens for ourselves. Just raise our perfect little Christian kids for ourselves. Keep them in their own little kind of safe place. Yeah. The church has been doing that for too long. He says, no, you're going to plant these gardens. You're going to raise these kids. You're going to build these houses for the good, the welfare, the prosperity of Babylon. Of this city. Babylon is, if you know your history, you know the Bible. This is like, this is the worst of the worst. Right? This is not, oh, they're not that bad. No, no. This, this is the worst <laughs> of cultures and places. And he says, I'm sending you there for their welfare, for their good. In their prosperity, you will find your prosperity. Right? The secularist mindset breeds individualism. And it says, yeah. Build your houses for yourself. Look out for number one. Seek it for yourself. The religious, moralistic tribalism says, no, build your houses, have your kids, seek your, your welfare for your tribe, for the insiders, for us in here, not for them out there. The call of the gospel, the call of God to his people is, no, do these things, have kids, Build culture, build businesses, plant churches, but do this for the good of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. It's a way of saying, love your neighbor and your neighborhood as yourself. We've heard it, right? Jesus said that, didn't he? Because, and it, it's the idea of investment. I, I heard the illustration. You know the difference uh, between a chicken and a ham or a pig and a ham and egg breakfast. What's the difference between the relationship of the pig and the chicken to your ham and like bacon and egg breakfast? Mm -hmm. The chicken is involved. He gave some, or she gave some donations, right? The ham is fully invested. He's fully invested. He, that's him. That's, he's the bacon in your breakfast, okay? The call is not to, oh, I got, I, I'll, I'll, I'll donate some eggs. 
the call is be fully invested in your community, right? So that when it prospers, you prosper, and when it suffers, you suffer. Now immediately the, the critics are like, oh, 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 that's going to lead to compromise, right? That, that's going to lead to the watering down of the gospel and of, of, of the church. Yeah, the culture's it's going to influence us in bad ways. But notice what it says. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. You know what that word is? The, the NIV uses the word peace. Seek the peace of the city. Right? I, I heard it. Shalom. This is an important word that you read in the Hebrew Scriptures. Shalom. This idea of peace isn't just this kind of, oh, there's no violence. This is this, this rich idea that in the scriptures always connects to God. You do not have shalom apart from God. Cornelius Plantiga, he's this, uh, this philosopher, he says this about shalom. He says, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire among enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. And so the peace that we seek for the city cannot be divorced from God. It is, it is a powerfully God-centered love that we give. Pastor Tim Keller in New York City, explains it like this. He says, God's people should so seek the blessing of their community and their, and their city that, that, that the non-believing community looks on and says something like, like this. I might not agree with your, your, your ethics and your, moral, your truth claims and, your, and your, your sexual values, but if you ever left town, we'd have to raise taxes. You see that there's a distinction, but the church is so invested in the community that all of them around realize, if that church wasn't here, we wouldn't know what to do. That's the call of God's people. That's the call of God's people in Jeremiah's day. It's the call of God's people today. So the third point, finally, how can we be like that? How can we be shaped by, by this gospel? How can we become people like that? How do we navigate the pitfalls of engaging culture without falling into some of the same errors of past generations? Should we be pessimistic or optimistic about our ability to change the city around us? Is the culture, is it primarily bad and fallen and sinful? Or is it is it fundamentally good and redeemable? How, how do we think about these issues? How do we navigate and wrestle through it? Right? The answer is, first, not to be shaped, right, primarily by the culture around us, right? Nor primarily to be shaped by the story of, of, of the church in the West, but ultimately and finally to be shaped by the narrative of the gospel. Notice I say narrative, by the, the story of the gospel. And that's going to help us navigate this. And this is actually happening in, 
in the church in the West, there is, there is a growing maturity as we think about culture of, of some of right the extremes of the, the, the fundamentalist generation and the crazy throw the baby out with the bathwater extremes of my generation. There's a growing maturity as we wrestle with the gospel and how the gospel calls us to be faithful in the culture. And I wanna, I wanna end walking through the story of the gospel and just looking at, at how it changes the way we interact with the city around us, okay? And the gospel comes in three primary movements. Creation, fall, and then finally, redemption and restoration. Okay, I'm gonna just walk through each of these quickly. Creation. Christians believe, the Bible teaches, that the material world is good. And it's important. And we see a God who cultivates and sustains creation. Right? So what that means is that all of our work, our vocations, so-called secular vocations, are not secular. Our vocations are the work of God in the world cultivating and sustaining Creation, right? Bringing order out of chaos. Making a garden fruitful where there is wilderness. So there's no sacred secular divide, right? We can do all our work in humble excellence, knowing that it pleases God. Some of the, uh, the past generation, we would, we would send all our most promising youth, right? Get into the ministry, Oh, yeah, you're great, you're smart, you, you have high aspirations. Oh, you, you want to serve God? Get into the ministry. Maybe. Maybe you need to be in business. Maybe you need to be in politics. Maybe you need to be in the arts. All of it is dignified. We also know from creation that all people are made with value, dignity, and worth. And so we protect the value and dignity of all people. We know that gender, sexuality, and marriage are beautiful gifts from God to be celebrated and enjoyed. And we know that we are brothers and sisters to all humanity. There's no room for individualism, tribalism, racism, sexism, classism. Right? We're all ultimately brothers and sisters. There's, there's a common humanity. That's what, that's what the doctrine of creation teaches us. And if you just start, and this is kind of, right, the, think of the four spiritual laws for a second. God bless you if you like this four spiritual laws. I like it too, right? It's the gospel. What does it start with? What's the first law? It starts with sin. Right? It starts with sin. Okay. The Bible doesn't start there. Right? The Bible starts with creation. Right? The Bible starts with creation. We need to start there. But then we, we can't stop there. There is a fall, right? The fall results in broken relationships. And there, uh, Francis Schaeffer described it like this. There's broken relationship with God, and that leads to a broken relationship with ourselves, with one another, and finally with nature and the rest of creation. And that, that disjointing, that breaking of relationships spreads everywhere so that Every aspect of culture is affected by sin. And there are idols ruling in the culture. And we see it in materialism and, and consumerism and individualism and, and, these, and these, these idols that are there. But we can't just point fingers, can we? Because there's idols in this room as well. And in this heart. 
as well. And so we, we can't run away. You, you can't create a Christian bubble, right, where you're safe from sin, where you're safe from from all the problems. I love sci-fi movies, and, and it, it, Interstellar is one of my favorites, right? And this is a common theme in sci-fi, right? The earth is broken and, and destroyed, and we need to colonize some other planet and start new, right? And then what happens? And that, right, you think, oh, it'll be, it'll be a, like a new utopia, right? Because we're leaving all the bad influences of society. Nope. What's the problem with the new civilization you started on another planet? You go there. You bring people there. Right? I mean, maybe if it was like, let's do a little civilization of horses or something. I mean, you could bring animals and probably would end up okay. But, but you bring people. And so there's no Christian bubble that you're safe from sin and you're safe from idols. We bring them with us. And... Another essential aspect is there's such a thing as common grace in the midst of a fallen world. Okay, common grace is this idea that there is, that God's goodness and kindness shows through in creation. Everywhere you go, everywhere you go, and you see God's beauty in culture. The world is inherently good, sustained by common grace, and yet it is cursed. Therefore, both the cultural works of Christians and, Christ and non-Christians have aspects that are beautiful and God-honoring and aspects that are idolatrous. Right? And it means that social change is possible. We can see the good. We can see things get better. But there's no utopia dreams, right? Like, there's just no... There's not going to be utopia here. Because because of the, the depth of sin that's still there. And then finally, redemption and restoration, the story of the gospel that culminates in Christ's coming, right? That he brings shalom to all creation. You read about it in, in, uh, in Romans 5, right? That we're justified we, we have, with God. We have righteousness because of Christ. Therefore, we have peace with God. They have shalom. We have restored relationship. And you read in Romans 8 that God's redeeming not just, he's not like just rapturing out a group of people and letting the world go to hell on a handbasket, right? No, he's, he's restoring all of creation, right? He's redeeming a broken world, making a new creation. He restores all things. He's undoing the curse. But there's this, this aspect that we see it, right? The, the salvation is here, but it's not here. It's now and it's not yet. There's this tension here. Right, where, where in one sense, yes, we have peace with God, but we still deal with the psychological, the internal effects of sin. We deal with the social effects of sin with one another. We deal with sickness and death. Right, There's, the physical effects of sin are still with us. And if we hold this tension correctly, we'll see that there will be some healing from sin. Right? There will be transformation in the church and in the culture. But we have to wait for that final day. And this gospel of grace, and this is what makes all the difference in the world for just humbling us from our, our triumphalism and our, our kind of, I don't know, just anger of the culture wars and our, the us-them that the, that the church has had. 
right? The gospel of grace reminds us that the people in the world are not as bad as their secular beliefs should make them out to be. And, and we remember that the lives of the people in the church are not as good or holy as our beliefs should make us to be. <laughs> we don't live up to the call that Christ has put on us. And the gospel of grace means that we should not be surprised when the people in the world and in our city are actually more moral and more kind than we are. We don't believe in a gospel of works. We don't believe that you're here because you're better than anyone else. Or that I'm here because I'm better than anyone else. We believe in a, in, a, in a savior that laid his life down. He's the hero. He's the one that's, that is holy. We, we are all the ones in need of grace. And so this gospel uproots our pride, our tribalism, Right? And we begin to love people who are different than us and people that are hard to love because we know that Christ loved them. And we know that we're going to find lasting happiness not in, in building our own tribe, but in laying our lives down in service to the world because that's the path of joy that Jesus took. Right? That was the joy set before him. He took that path of the cross. And so that's the invitation of the church, to be a church that exists for the good of the city, right? Not, not just to take from the city. Now, I only have a, I only have a couple minutes to go, and I want to, uh, we could spend all morning on this, and so I'm just going to throw out just a couple dreams uh, for us to, to think and dream and, 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 and talk about. What would, it, what would that look like to be a church that really exists for the good of our city? And, and don't just think immediately, like, remember the vine and trellis? Don't just think trellis work. Okay, the church is going to start a bunch of ministries, and, and we're going to do this and this and this and organize around some big structured thing. No, this is primarily vine work. This is primarily us being released in the community, us getting together and having ideas, and us just together as, as people, as believers figure out how to have an impact. Just, just a couple ideas to throw out there. What if we, what if we had adopted Montevilla Park in this neighborhood? What if we loved and served the homeless in that park? Not adopted it like, we're going to clean up our neighborhood. <clears throat> right? Or the other extreme, oh, we're just going to ignore them. Pretend they're not there. Pretend the drugs are not. No. What if we were Jesus? What if we, we got to know them, heard their stories, and made a difference in one life? What if we did soccer tournaments to reach out to the refugee kids who play there? We throw neighborhood parties all summer long. What if we swam in the pool, played basketball in the gym, and volunteered in the summer camps? What if, what if we just live the life of the church out in a public way and we made a difference and an impact, not just in cleaning up the park, but in, but in like really seeing transformation for all members of the community, with homes and without homes. Another, another random idea. Kim Stave shared about uh, a meeting that they had at Multnomah University where uh, they were getting disaster readiness training. And she described this, uh, this woman who came and did the training, and, and she talked about her neighborhood. 
And she talked about how she, she had, she, how she, that every month, once or twice a month, the whole neighborhood got together. And they would throw barbecues, and they would meet in people's houses. They all knew each other. And, and they, they were in relationships and friends, and they all looked out for each other. And she said, in a disaster, the, the greatest danger is not being known in your neighborhood. And the, the best way to survive and be safe and be prepared for disaster isn't primarily you got, you got to get all your water, right? Have your, your potable water ready, have your first aid kit, and have your backup generator or whatever, right? That, that's not the top of the list. You know what the top of the list of being ready for disaster is? Know your neighbors. Because, right, when things fall apart, when things go, go, go bad, you need people. You need community. And so they, they do simple things like, right, you have a disaster, you know, you put up on your window. Right? The, the green flag is, I'm safe. There's no flag, you go to that house. You find out. You find out who are the widows. Right? Who are the widowers? Who are the people that don't have community? Who are the, 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 the people that have limited transportation, the needs? You go there first. You figure out. You get to know your neighbors. And so what would that look like if we just say, you know what? We're, we're going to adopt our neighborhoods. We're going to be the disaster readiness person. And for, this, for the love of Jesus, for the love of the community, we got to know our neighbors. Oh, there's so many ideas. There's so many things that we can do. But let, let's close with this. The story of exile and even the story right, of, of being sent out of the garden it looks like bad news. It looks like, like, as we think about even hearing about the, the story of the church and looking at Portland and, and seeing just the, the, all the moral problems and, the, and the, the deteriorating society. And you'd be like, oh, this is so bad. It's all falling apart. God. And, and it feels negative and bad. But what you see here is God's purpose in it. Not just... And we talked about the missional purpose, that we would be a light and blessing in Babylon and in our city. That's God's purpose for the city. He loves people. But God has a purpose in our hearts too. Taking us out of our comfort, taking us out of our place of cultural influence and safety and our perfect little neighborhoods. And making us feel marginalized. Making us have to move to the, the margins of society. And realize that we're not in control. What does it do to our hearts? It breaks us. And it wakes up a sleeping church. And that's why, as we, we end this passage, we can see this invitation from God to seek him. And this promise. That it's in this, this moment of discipline and this moment of, of going through exile that he then renews our hearts. That he renews our inner life, draws us near, near to him so that we have something to offer to others. Listen to this. For thus says the Lord, this is in verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, so your peace. I have plans for your shalom also and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. 
declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you promise that you will restore the fortunes of your people. God, and we confess that, that for too long we have, we have thought our inheritance lies in this world. We have thought that our inheritance lies in having a, a great, strong church, a building that's filled with people, a culture where, where, we can, uh, where our, our ethics and values are affirmed. God, that is not the kingdom. That is not the, the shalom that you have offered us. You offered us something so much better so much better. You are bringing your kingdom. You are restoring us from the inside out, God, and you will return and you will make all things new. And we get to be a part of that renewal process today. Lord, make us a church for this city. Make us a church that seeks the prosperity, the the shalom, the peace, the flourishing of this community. Lord, you are good and you will do this. Your name we pray. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.